Well, let us continue in worship this morning as we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. I am so glad all of you are here, every single one of you, in particular if you are not a Christian. If you don't consider yourself a believer in the Lord, I am especially glad that you're here. This sermon is, is for you. And I want to anchor this er sermon, I want to ground this sermon upon one very important question which I have included in the sermon notes. The question is this, it has to do with the Bible. You see Bibles everywhere, on people's laps, um, their tablets, their phones, hopefully nothing more than the Bibles. Uh, but uh, we see it everywhere. It, this is all about the Bible. We are here to study this book. And so the question that I have included here says this. It's a very historic question from the catechisms. What do the scriptures principally teach? What is the Bible all about? What is the Bible all about? The historic answer, which I have also included in the notes, has two parts, as you can see. The Bible, or the scriptures, principally teach two things. Number one, what man is to believe concerning God. And number two, what duty God requires of man. That is a summary statement of what the Bible is about. To put it different words, the Bible tells you who God is and what to do about it. The Bible tells you who God is and what to do about it. Paul, in this sermon that we're about to hear addresses both subjects in Acts 17. Why? Because he was asked a question. I wonder if you remember the question. The question is found in Acts 17 verse 18 at the end of that verse. We saw Paul preaching Jesus and the resurrection. In verse 19, the Athenians became very curious about his message concerning Jesus and the resurrection, and so they asked Paul, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Verse 20, we wish to know what these things mean. Paul is about to explain Jesus and the resurrection. This is one of the biggest moments in Paul's ministry. So curious were the Athenians that about Jesus and the resurrection that the Athenians gave Paul the center stage of the intellectual and philosophical world of antiquity, known as the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill. As Paul stood there in the famous city of Athens, before the great Greek philosophers surrounded by idols and temples, he preached Jesus and the resurrection. Hear now the word of the living God, beginning in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel, feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being therefore God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. Verse 30, the, time, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people, people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. If you and I will understand Jesus and the resurrection, we must first understand the grand narrative of redemption. In this specific case, and according to our passage, in order for us to understand Jesus and the resurrection, we must first understand who God is, and second, we must understand what God requires of us, and third, we must be confronted with a question, which we will consider at the end. Before we get to the resurrection, let us first ask the first question. What is man to believe concerning God? What is man to believe concerning God? First, if you're following the notes, the first thing, you must believe that God created all things. You must believe that God created all things. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. Notice how Paul begins. He begins the same way the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Paul's evangelism was not about convincing people that God exists. Did you hear that? Paul's evangelism was not about convincing people that God exists. Rather, God's existence what was his starting point. Was his starting point, his foundation. And this God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he created heaven and earth and everything in it. He is the God who created all things. There are no competitors. Only one God. Why begin here? He was speaking to a polytheistic culture of many 
false god, many false idols. Therefore, Paul begins his evangelism by smashing idols to the ground, not with a hammer, but with the truth. Creation, Paul says, is the work of one true God, not many, because there is only one. That's the first thing you must believe concerning God. He created everything. No, evolution did not create anything. In fact, evolution, understood as a blind, impersonal force, has more to do with ancient Greek philosophy than with scientific progress. Materialism has been around for a long time. Second, you must believe that God possesses all authority. God possesses all authority. Continue in verse 24. Being Lord of heaven and earth. Not only is creation the work of one true God, but he is also Lord over all creation. There, <clears throat> there is nothing impersonal about creation. It is not just atoms blindly running into each other. Creation has a purpose because God is Lord over all of it. He has authority as Lord to determine the purpose of all things, including all of human history, including your personal life. He directs everything to its intended goal. There is no such thing as chance, fate, or luck. You know what those three are? False idols, false gods. The true God is Lord over all things. He oversees and he directs all things. This also means that God, being Lord, determines the order of all things. Male and female is God's good order. Therefore, homosexuality and transgenderism are an affront against God's lordship. Conception in the womb is God's good order. Therefore, abortion is an affront against God's lordship. God, being Lord, is the only one who can tell us how to live and what life is about. We are not in charge. We never have been in charge. We never will be. God is Lord. Three, number third, number third. You must believe that God transcends all things. You must believe that God transcends all things. Continue in verse 24. He does not live in temples made by man. God created all things and is Lord over all things, but he does not belong to creation. He is outside of creation. He is uncreated. Therefore, we must not seek to trap him or try to confine him to anything made by human hands. You can't. He does not belong to creation. He is eternal. He is uncreated God. God himself says in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1 and 2, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. What can your little hands 
says God, to all of us. What can your little hands build for me, man, says the Lord, when everything you have is mine? Everything. Number four, you must believe that God doesn't need anything. Verse 25, God doesn't need anything, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. You cannot add to God anything or make him happier. You can't. God is self-sufficient. Raise your hand. Don't. If you are self-sufficient. This is known as the aseity of God. Ase, he comes from himself. He is from himself. There is no source outside of God that sustains him. Nothing. He needs nothing. God not only is outside of creation, but he is also independent from all creation. God's perfection, his power, his goodness, his lordship, his control, his authority, etc., etc. All of it comes from himself. You give God nothing. I give God nothing. Everything comes from himself. Moreover, God has never learned anything, for he knows all things, nor has he needed anything, for he possesses all things. The word need, need, belongs in the created realm. The created beings. Creation is very, very needy. You need air. You need water. You need food. You need protection from viruses, bacteria, evil in general, etc., etc. And not just once, we need all these things over and over and over and over again. How many breaths can you skip before you drop dead? That's how small you are. That's how weak you are. That's how small we are. And we think we're something. God, on the other hand, needs nothing. He never has. He never will. Number five, you must believe that God provides everything. Verse 25, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. Consider your life, my friend. What aspect of your life? All of it. The fact that you are alive this morning is the gift of God for you. Life itself is from God. And if, if that were not enough, your ability to continue to breathe every second, the oxygen that fills your lungs is also from God. Right now you're breathing, aren't you? I hope you are. If not, we have a problem. You're breathing. Count the breaths. How many are dependent on God? Every single one. Every single one. The fact that blood can even run through your veins is God's gift to you. As if that were not enough, everything else is also from God. So God is self-sufficient, dependent on nothing or no one for anything, while we in everything and for everything depend on Him. Not only is this teaching us what to believe about God, but also what to believe about ourselves. We are very, very, very small. 
Human life is truly a vapor that is here one day and gone the next. Let me ask you this. What guarantees you that you will be here tomorrow? We're very small. Number six. You must believe that God makes every human being. Verse 26. God and God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God made all human, all humans from one man, namely Adam. This simply means that we are all one single race. One single race. What is our race? Human. Human race. You and I, along with everyone else you have ever met, came from the same source, the historical first man in the Garden of Eden, Adam. Therefore, every conception in the womb is the work of God, and every nation, meaning every human being that makes up every nation, is the work of God's hand. As David says to God in Psalm 139, for you formed my inward part. You needed me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. No, you did not come from some kind of primordial goo. You came from a man and that union of that man and that woman. You see, procreation is God's design and it will always be God's design. So... A man marrying a man, a woman marrying a woman is not God's design. It is a, a desire and a, a wish to destroy the good design of God. He created us this way. Neither are you an accident. You were made for a purpose. And neither are you defined by your skin color as critical race theory teaches. One of the most destructive things that are, that are taking place now is the teaching of critical race theory, which basically categorizes every person according to their color of their skin. That is a satanic lie. You are not your whiteness. In fact, let me tell you this, if you looked white, you would be in trouble. We're all different shades. Why? Because all, we all came from one man. Your whiteness does not matter. Your brownness does not matter. You are a human made in God's image, descended from Adam. Number seven, you must believe that God determines the details of our existence. Verse 26, God having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Consider the personal nature of God. Not only does God create every single human being in the womb, but he also determines the time period in which they are born and the geographical place in which they live. I hate to break it to you, but you did not decide where to be born or when or what language to speak. You just showed up and you were crying about it. God ordained your existence without asking you. Did God ever ask you, anybody, where would you like to be born? He's Lord. He is Lord. God ordained your existence. But here comes, here comes the big question. 
Why did God ordain your existence? Why are you even here to begin with? Number eight, I'm running out of fingers. You must believe. Here's the great purpose. You must believe that God desires to be known. Verses 27 and 28. God desires to be known. Here's the purpose, verse 27, that they should see God. God created all human beings, that they should see God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In the 17th century, a man by the name of Lord Herbert, who was a soldier, a politician, and a philosopher, developed his own idea of God known as deism. Deism teaches that the world was made to function like clockwork. In other words, God is not really involved in anything. Like a clock, the world just runs unguided. God is basically uninterested. But this is not the biblical teaching. God created humans in order to be known by them. God created you so that you might seek God and find God. In fact, so close is God to us that in Him we live and we move and we have our being. God is so intimately interested in us that everything about our existence is sustained by God. As we saw, God transcends His creation. He does not belong to the created realm, for He is eternal and uncreated, but He's also close to His creation. He cares. He desires to be known by you. And notice what Paul does here. He quotes part of a poem that says, For we are indeed His offspring. Where did that poem come from? There are two poets who were well-known at that time in Athens. One was Aratus, probably born in Tarsus, just like Paul. And the other poet was Cleanthes, who happened to be a Stoic, like several of those who were listening to Paul that day. Both of these men wrote poems in which they agreed upon one thing. We all come from a common origin. A higher power outside of this creation made us. All of the people in the audience that day would have been familiar with these poems and would have recognized that line. Why did Paul do that? To establish the fact that idols, like the ones in Athens, they cannot make us. They cannot be responsible for our creation. Their own poets understood this. We are God's offspring then in the sense that God is our common origin. God created Adam and we all come from Adam. Therefore, we all come from God, not from idols. And this leads naturally to the next truth, number nine. You must believe that God, therefore, has no physical form. Verse 29. God has no physical form. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The point is this, human imagination... Human imagination will never be able to do justice to the glory of God because the imagination of man is confined to the things which are seen and experienced in this world. Unfortunately, even the most precious of metals like gold or silver or the strongest of materials like stone cannot be faithful representatives of God's greatness, God's glory, and God's power. The true God is beyond anything you can think of. Therefore, anything that comes from our imagination 
religion that seeks to represent God is an offense against Him. But this is precisely where the problem is. Notice Paul's language back in verse 27. God made men that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. What is that? That language has the idea of groping in the dark. Groping in the dark. Human philosophy, and shall we say human imagination, is nothing more than that. Men trying to grope in darkness, feeling their way into the light. Sadly, please listen to this, sin, sin, this rebellion against the true God has so affected humanity that apart from divine revelation from above, even our feelings have become weapons of self-destruction. How come? Feelings under the pervasive influence of sin always lead to false and dangerous conclusions. Human feelings are unreliable at best, deceitful at worst. What does the Bible say about the heart? Oh, don't listen to it. The heart is deceitful above all things. So let me bring it down to this. Idolatry, idolatry is at bottom. Idolatry is at bottom feelings in rebellion against God. And when we create gods according to our feelings, those gods are nothing but idols, empty creations, powerless gods. And here's where the first question in your notes begins to give way to the second question in your notes. Human worship has gone rogue. We have chosen idols to take the place of the true and living God. The central problem of man is that he, being under the pervasive, all-encompassing power of sin, desires to worship everything and anything except the true and living God. Man would rather make a false god and bow before him than to prostrate himself before the true God. My friend, please do not miss the point that is being made here. Man is religious. Man is religious. Every single one of us in this room is religious, just like the Athenians were. The question is not, are you a worshiper? That's not the question. You want to know what the true question is? Who or what do you worship? But worship, you will. And because our worship has become idolatrous, we must ask the second question. What then does God require of us? What does God require of man? First, Here's the first requirement of God. Man must repent of his sins of idolatry. Verse 29. We go back to verse 29. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Notice carefully in verse 29. Keep your eyes on verse 29. Notice what he says. Two words sum up his point. Think and imagination. Do you realize what Paul is saying? Idolatry is born within, not without. 
Idolatry, according to our passage, is an issue of the thinking and the imaginations of men. Idolatry boils down to this, wrong thinking about God that results in false worship of false gods. Before there can be any material idols, there must be mental ones formed within the soul of man. This being the case, let me ask you, how is your thinking about God? As one author famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's the bottom line. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And of this, of idolatrous thinking, wrong thinking, sinful thinking about God, we must, the Bible says, we must repent, meaning this, we must think of God in terms of his written revelation, not our own imagination. Repentance means realigning our thinking in light of God's self-revelation in the Bible and turning away from our own self-made conceptions of God in our own image. That's idolatry. But what about the times of ignorance mentioned in verse 30? The times of ignorance God has overlooked. Doesn't ignorance imply innocence? Isn't it true that the Athenians were idolaters because they didn't have God's written revelation like the Jews did? It's not that simple. Go with me to Acts chapter 14, verse 16. There is something you must know. While the people of Lystra, in Paul's first missionary journey, were trying to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods because they performed miracles, this is what Paul said to them. To the people at Lystra, in Acts 14, 16, in past generations, he, meaning God, allowed all the nations, meaning the Gentiles, to walk in their own ways. Why? They didn't have revelation. Yet he did not leave himself without a what? A witness. What was the witness? For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What does that mean? It means that creation itself is a witness to God's goodness, power, and generosity. Creation is a witness that proclaims what? The glory of God, says Psalms 19 verse 1. Creation itself levels the plane. It makes all men inexcusable before God. In other words, I'm going to be very honest with you, direct, because I love you. If you came up to me and you said to me, I don't believe in God, I don't believe he exists, I know that you're telling me that because you're suppressing the truth. You're suppressing what you know. Unbelief is not for lack of evidence. It's not for lack of evidence. Unbelief is suppression of the truth that we all know. And it comes from creation. God has not left himself without a witness. Therefore, the times of ignorance is a reference to culpable ignorance, an ignorance for which men are accountable to God. What does it mean that God overlooked it? It means that God did not immediately destroy all nations for going after false gods. The Lord exercised patience toward them. But now, says Paul in verse 30, look at verse 30. But now he, meaning God, commands all people everywhere to do what? You can say it with me, to repent, a word that has gone 
out of our vocabulary completely. Now all peoples everywhere, in every nation, must turn from their idolatry and believe in the one true God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because now the truth, as it is in Christ Jesus, is no longer confined to one ethnic nation. It is now going into all the world as the word of God is preached in the power of the Spirit. That's the first thing you must do. You must repent. You must repent. Number two. Here's the second duty that God requires of man. Man must consider... Man must consider the coming day of judgment. The coming day of judgment. Human history will end. Human history will end. Suddenly, but not accidentally. History, including your own history, will end. History is not vain, purposeless, meaningless, or a random assortment of circumstances. It is all moving into one single direction. Human history will end. And the concluding event, that which will bring an end to it all, will be a day. A day. A fixed day, meaning a day already established by God himself. It's on the calendar. It's on the calendar. On that final fixed day, God will execute judgment upon the entire world. And this judgment will be, says verse 30, in righteousness, meaning according to God's righteous standard as revealed in his perfect word, his justice will prevail. Not yours, not mine. God's justice will prevail prevail and every deed every thought every word that must be punished will be punished you must understand judgment why because you and i are surrounded by a culture training us to think that there is nothing coming just do whatever you want be whoever you want it'll all be okay but the bible is telling us today no no no. you must consider ponder you give you must give thought to the day of judgment it is fixed unmovable, unchangeable. And it is coming. How do we know this? Because of one man. God says in verse 31, God will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him. From the dead. Here's the third duty that God requires of you. Men must turn to the Lord Jesus. Both repentance and judgment are not independent realities. They both ultimately point to one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. You must repent of your sins in order to turn to Jesus in faith, and you must consider Judgment Day in order to take refuge in Jesus also by faith. At the end of the day, it is all about Jesus. Why Jesus? Why Jesus? For this central reason. The God whom Paul described in verses 24 through 29 
the God you must believe in, that same Lord who created heaven and earth, became a man. Became a man. The God whom we have offended by our idolatry, the one against whom we have sinned, he entered our human existence as a man yet without sin. He is the eternal Son of God incarnate in the flesh, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Lord who made heaven and earth, the Lord who possesses all things, the Lord who knows all things, who is self-sufficient, who provides everything, and who has no form. He became like one of us. And there are three main reasons why he did this. First, he died for our sins. He died for our sins. Before there can be any resurrection, there must be a death. And that's what Jesus did. He died. Why? Because the wages of sin is, you know it. The wages of sin is death. Death is what sin deserves. God owes you and I something. God owes you something. Death. Death. Never tell God, never tell God, God, give me what I deserve. Because death, it's all that you deserve. If you have sinned, death is what God owes you. But God became a man in order to die in the place of sinners, though he never committed a sin. He went to the cross, the Lord Jesus, God in the flesh, to pay that debt that we owed. He died for our idolatry. He died for idolaters. He died for homosexuals. He died for those who are transgender. He died. He died for our corruption, for our idolatry, our sin on the cross. He provided the sacrifice for our evil, our sin, our rebellion. He died because we have gone astray. This is humanity after the fall. It is all corruption. It is all darkness. But Jesus went to the cross to take the punishment. He said, give me what they deserve. I'll take it. I'll take it. Upon that cross, Jesus made full satisfaction for our sins. Justice was satisfied. God's wrath was appeased. Our debt was paid in full. And God, having looked upon that payment by his own son in the flesh, on the basis of that death. And after three days, he gave that man, the Lord Jesus, his incarnate son, the right to exercise all authority over all people because he, as a man, having presented his own body as a payment for sin, having undergone the deepest and the greatest humiliation the world has ever seen, he was then exalted. As a man, he was exalted. And this exaltation began with his bodily resurrection, which is the second aspect of his work. He rose from the dead. The satisfaction provided by his death, by his blood, was so perfect, was so final, that his right to, ex to exaltation began by him destroying death. The exaltation of Jesus began with his authority. Over what? His authority over the wages of sin, which is what? Death. He destroyed it. He destroyed death. What you deserve, what I deserve, Jesus destroyed it. Take note of that, my friend. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? 
He did because this man, Jesus of Nazareth, died in order to destroy death, and he did so by dying and taking his life back again. The same body that died came out of death, but now perfectly renewed, never to die again. He died in weakness. He arose in power. His body is now indestructible. Jesus will never die again. The bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead was the first announcement of his comprehensive authority over all things, including death itself. And since Jesus has authority over death, that also means that he's the only one who can forgive sins because he's the only one who destroyed the wages of sin by dying and rising again. Death is under the feet of Jesus, that man who ascended to the Father. What else is under the feet of Jesus? That's an easy one. What else is under the feet of Jesus? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 27 says that God has put all things in subjection under his feet. All things, included the Athenians who were listening to Paul that day in Acts chapter 17, and also including you. The resurrection means that Jesus is the one man in all of human history who is fully and perfectly approved by God the Father. And now, as the risen and ascended Lord, he's the only one by whom God will judge all humans. What does that mean? It means this. Please, if you don't listen to anything else, listen to this. What does it mean that God will judge the world and every single human being by Jesus? It means this. Let me put it very, very simply. Your present life and your eternal future are both bound fully to what you do with the Lord Jesus today. That's what that means. Let me put it even more simply. If you reject the Lord Jesus, God will reject you and he will do so eternally. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, God will accept you and he will also do so eternally. Why? Because of this. You will either accept the death of Jesus as the judgment for your sins or, you will, or Jesus will cast his judgment upon you and you will pay for your own sins. All of which leads us to the last aspect of his work. Number third, here we go. He will return. He will return. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross for sinners. Three days later, he was raised and was given all authority and dominion in heaven and on earth. Currently, as I speak, this Jesus, the same man who died and rose again, this Jesus is ruling, he is building his church, and he is defeating all his enemies. His word is increasing in the world. Even now, as I speak his word, he is exercising his lordship. The final stage of his work will be his second coming. What will Jesus do then? Bring final judgment on earth. Please, in your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5, and we are almost to the end. John chapter 5, and I want us to read verses 21 
22 and 23. It is the Lord Jesus himself who spoke these words. And so, my dear friend, it is the Lord Jesus speaking to you this morning. You know who I am? I'm a nobody. I'm just a slave. The one who actually speaks is the Lord Jesus. And this is what he says. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Stay in John. Do you see the point? All judgment, all judgment is in the hands of the Son, the Lord Jesus. Remember, the day of judgment is fixed. No one will escape it. So the question, the final question, is what will you do? What will you do? Let's read verses 32 to 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Some men joined and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You have three options. Mockery, curiosity, or faith. Mockery, curiosity, or faith. If you mock, if you mock the resurrection of Jesus, if you mock the authority of Jesus, the death of Jesus, that's on you. That's on you. If you're curious, that's also on you. The only question that matters is will you believe? I love how the names of those who believed were singled out, at least some of them. Will your name be among those who have believed in Jesus? I leave you with the words that are found in John chapter 3, and I want you to follow along as I read. And with this, we'll finish. John chapter 3, verses 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Will you mock him? Will you remain curious? None of that will matter but only will you believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in the Lord today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. For there is an undeniable reality as we read this word. There is an undeniable reality that whatever we read is true. For the Bible knows our hearts better than we know ourselves. And there is no other message in this world that can offer the hope that the gospel offers. Oh, that you, that your son, the eternal son, became like one of us, lived a perfect life under the law, died for our sins, for our idolatry, our corruption, our immorality, 
He took it upon himself, the punishment for our sin. And he was placed in a tomb. And after three days, he rose again, never to die again. And that to that man, the Lord Jesus, you, Father, have given all authority in heaven and on earth, and that one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. And so, Father, I pray for that which only you can do. Give faith to those who don't believe and strengthen the faith of those who do. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.